0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Good evening. (laughs) Hello. I'm really excited about this passage tonight. Romans 8 is just an amazing, 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 amazing chapter. But it's even more amazing because you guys have all been willing to make the journey with me through Romans 1 through 7. I really think it just stands out even that much more. And it's really, really incredible. Um, We started Romans 8 last week, but we're going to pick up where we left off just a few verses in. And every week we've said the title has been no something. And tonight's is no better news. And I don't mean by that, right? If you're cynical, you might think, well, this is the best we can get. There's no better news. No, that's not what I mean. (laughs) What I mean is there's no possible better news. There's no way the news could be any better. It's really fascinating because so far as we've walked through the uh, book of Romans, we've been focusing on that thesis statement, which we're going to read again together in a second. But we've been focusing on that thesis statement and Paul has really begun to pick, pick it apart a little bit. So we've, we've reflected on God's impartiality. We've reflected on God's power. We've reflected on the nature of faith and the role that it plays in the gospel. We've reflected on the idea of salvation and that it applies to everybody. But now in chapter eight, it's like Paul has been winding up. And now that he's laid the groundwork, he finally gets to talk about why the gospel is good. It's amazing we've been this far. And sure, there's been good things we've heard. Absolutely. But the idea is that gospel means good news. And as we really dig into chapter eight, we're about to discover that it's not just the good news of your salvation. That is so good. We could camp on that forever. And yet the amazing thing about the gospel is that's just the the tip of it. That the good news is incredible. In fact, I really genuinely believe that this is one of those passages. This is one of those chapters. This is one of those truths. This is one of those things. This is, this is part of the, the beauty of the gospel that if we were to really immerse ourselves in the truths here in Romans 8, if we were to just revel in them and dwell on them and soak in them and refuse to be distracted from the good news of Romans 8, I think it would change everything for us. I really do. To the degree that I have been able to do that in my life, it has changed everything for me. And I just think that that, it, that, that, that I, I really, I'm, I'm praying that this resonates today with everybody in, on the OWL and Facebook and here in the room. I'm just praying this really resonates. We're going to stop and actually pray that here in a second, but trust me, it's going on in my head right now. Praying that this resonates, praying that we begin to immerse ourselves in this. It may not all be there tonight, but I really think this is one of those truths that just has the power to make everything look different. It's a little bit like, for those of you who are familiar with The Matrix, who, who, who's familiar enough, and remembers it, has been a long time since they have seen the movie, which pill is the one that lets you see reality? Is it the blue or the red one? Okay, none of you know, so it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go with it. Uh, in The Matrix, um, Morpheus hands Neo a pill, and he says, you can choose to see the truth of the world or not. It's up to you. And then, forgive me if I'm wrong, if you take the, the red pill, you just go back to your life and you'll forget you ever met me. If you take the blue pill, you'll see the truth. And, and Neo has to make a choice. And I think this passage is like that. It's like taking the blue pill. You will see reality and it will change everything. So let's read our thesis. Oh, Lion, did you look it up? The red pill is the one that shows you the truth. The blue, which one? Got it wrong?: Oh man. Red, actual blue. So sorry. I got it backwards. But trust me, it doesn't change the theology at all. OK. Let's read the thesis statement together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into Romans eight. All right? So here we go. Romans 1: 16 through17. four. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. So we're starting in verse 12. That's where we left off last week. In fact, I'm not going to even go back and review so much Romans 8 like we have in the past because we've left off right at a review. Romans 8 12 gives us a nice review. Paul says this Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. I will remind you briefly what Paul talked about in Romans 8 at the beginning was that those who are believers are those who live according to the Spirit. And those who are unredeemed are living according to the flesh, by definition. Their life is in the flesh, they dwell in the flesh, they have no choice, and they are enslaved by the flesh. Those who are believers, those who are redeemed, we now have the Spirit of God in us, and our spirit has been resurrected or created anew, whatever the right terminology is there. God will have to let me know when we get there. But we have a new spirit one way or the other and the Holy Spirit in us. And as we live according to that, which he said all believers do, we, ought, we do live according to the Spirit. It's not, it's not a choice we make. It's something that is true. If we are believers, as that happens, then we recognize we're no longer enslaved to the flesh. We are free now to make choices. And so that's why he says we have an obligation. Now Paul does something interesting here, which he does a lot. But there's one thing that's even more interesting about this habit now. The thing he does a lot is he interrupts himself with parentheses, right? It's in this case, it's translated with a dash of some kind. My daughter could tell you exactly what kind, but it's, it's interrupted with a dash. He says, therefore, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. What's really interesting is a lot of times Paul will, will make a, will talk. He'll put in a parentheses and then he'll go for chapters before he closes that parenthesis. Literally he does that in Romans sometimes. This one's even more interesting because the best I can tell and I looked and I searched, he never closes this parenthesis. In other words, he says we have an obligation but he never says to what. He only says what we don't have an obligation to. And I have a theory tonight and I'm going to show it to you later. My theory is that Paul was going to say, obviously, that we have an obligation to the spirit to live according to it rather than to the flesh. That would match everything he said. But my theory is that God, in his wisdom and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stopped Paul from remembering and completing this obligation. And I'll show you why I think that is in a few verses. So the point that he is making right now is that we do not have an obligation to the flesh. The point is we used to have an obligation to the flesh. We used to have an obligation. We were enslaved by the flesh to do what it told us to do. For unbelievers, they do live according to the flesh. They are obligated to the flesh. They have no choice. They, do just, they are just enslaved to it. For believers, we're no longer obligated to it. We no longer have to serve the flesh. And he goes on. So, so this has been a key thing he's been saying for the last several chapters. Remember the question that we've been dealing with throughout here is, should we then sin? First they said, should we sin because grace will cover it anyway? Then they said, should we sin because we're no longer under the law? And Paul's answer in both cases was, you can. Indeed. Grace will still cover it and there will be no condemnation because you're not under the law, but you no longer have to. Well, then he goes on to explain why if you don't have to, then the question becomes, well, maybe we want to. And this is what Paul says to that. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, again, who lives according to the flesh? The unbelievers. So this is not an exhortation saying as a believer you choose whether you're going to live according to the flesh or the spirit. He's been very consistent about these phrases throughout. What he is saying is he's giving you a memory. He's saying, look, you're no longer obligated to the flesh. And you say, but maybe I still want to do things that I did in the flesh. And Paul says, well, do you remember how that worked out? That unbelievers who have no choice and live according to the flesh, does it benefit them at all? And the answer is no. It brings them death. Whereas you have a choice and you do live according to the spirit. And guess what? It's bringing you life. So he's really giving two answers to the should we sin question. The first one is you don't have to anymore. The good news is not that you shouldn't sin. The good news is you don't have to. You're free from the obligation to do what your flesh tells you to do. You no longer have to live as if this is all there is. You are now so much more. And the second answer is, now that you don't have to, remember that there's no benefit to you. Sin never brought you life. And it never will again. So if it isn't good for you, and you don't have to do it, then as we say to our allegorical or hypothetical emancipated slave, we would say to him, you may go back to your master, but remembering that all he ever brought you was death and that you no longer have to, why would you? This is his answer. And this is a good review of everything we've looked at so far coming up to this point. That we are not led by the flesh. We are not enslaved by the flesh. Our minds are not set upon the flesh. We are not living in the realm of the flesh. We are not under the dominion of the flesh. Because of this, we're not obligated to live according to it. And when we were obligated, it only led to death. So now we can live recognizing we have put to death, or rather, the Lord has put to death the misdeeds of the body. Remember when it said he condemned sin in the flesh. I think misdeeds of the body and sin in the flesh are the same phrase. He's condemned that sin in us. He's executed it and killed it. So you are no longer obligated to it. Okay, that's just the review. That's exciting enough. That's good news enough. But Paul's about to really get moving here. He says this, for those who are led by the spirit, which is who? Believers. Every believer is led by the spirit. That is the reality. That is who you are. That is who your master is. That is everything now. Those who are led by the spirit of God are what? Children of God. He's making all these connections, right? All these linkages. Those who believe became redeemed. Those who are redeemed are led by the spirit. Those who are led by the spirit are no longer obligated to the flesh and they are children of God. Then he says this, interestingly enough, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. And here we come upon the reason that I believe God prevented Paul from finishing his parenthetical phrase because Paul's been wrestling with this allegory of slavery throughout. And you'll notice this isn't the first time. Every time he comes up to saying that we are slaves of God, he gives a little check. It's like God gives a little check because it's not quite right. It's an allegory. So it's okay that sometimes he goes there a little bit, but there is this hesitation. He's done this twice now for sure. And the first time was when he talked all about how we were slaves to sin. And then just as he begins to talk about being slaves to the Holy Spirit, he uttered this phrase, which you may remember. He says, now, of course, I'm speaking in human terms. What does he mean when he says that? This isn't quite right. (laughs) This is an allegory that doesn't quite fit. We were slaves to the flesh. It doesn't feel quite right to say we're slaves to the father. And now we get to this point where he says, we're not obligated to the flesh. And he's going to say we're obligated to the spirit. And God says, hold on. Don't say that. Instead, say what? We're children. We're children of God, not slaves of God. And the spirit you received, in fact, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's like Paul was going to continue the analogy and God said, it's time to move on from the slavery analogy because the truth is even better than that. I think when we get in this mindset that our relationship with God is one of employment to him, we're missing a lot. I've grown distrustful, not that it's ever, not that it's never right. There's times you could say this, but I've grown distrustful of the phrase working for God. Because when you work for God, it sounds like we're doing stuff and then he's paying us for it. But the only wages Paul has mentioned were death that sin gave us. We earned sin, but what was the other part of that passage? The gift of God is life. God is not a master who bestows upon us life because we earned it. He's a father who gives us life because that's what fathers do. Because he loves us. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. I love this too. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Who says that you're God's children? Me? Only because God said it first. Your feelings, your emotions, your own reasoning, sometimes those will say you're anything but a child of God. Who testifies you're a child of God? The Spirit does. You know, I love the word testifies too because it's not just doesn't just mean tells the truth. Testifies, witness bears witness to, that's gotten kind of weirdly watered down in the church. It becomes just it just means I'm going to tell you a story or tell you something cool. I'm going to testify. No, testifying and bearing witness comes specifically from the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments that we often misquote. Don't lie is actually not one of the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean it's okay. There's a lot of things that aren't in the Ten Commandments. (laughs) But it never says thou shalt not lie. It says thou shalt not bear false witness. And it's talking specifically about a very, very bad thing that you can do where capital punishment is sometimes the punishment for, for a crime you could go make up a story and blame your neighbor and get him killed. Which is why the law requires two witnesses, because you have to get someone else to collaborate with you if you're going to tell a lie like that. But it's also why in all of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness, is one of them that itself is subject to capital punishment. (laughs) If you bear false witness, you are subject to the punishment you were trying to bring on them. So when it says that the Spirit testifies that we are God's children, it's a really strong idea. It's not just the Spirit is like, oh, yeah, 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 you're children. No, the Spirit is swearing by it. The Spirit is taking the stand and saying, so help me, me, to quote George Burns and not my God too. Oh, God too. The Spirit is testifying, swearing that you are his children. You are God's children. I don't know why this is. And I would think that maybe there was something really flawed in the way a parent, I'm sure there is, but I don't think this is the cause of what I'm about to share, because it was also true in my life, my brother's life, it's true in a lot of other children's lives that I've spoken to as a counselor. Most of my children, not all of them, this is not universal, but most of my children have at some point felt they didn't really belong in our family. And I felt that way as a child, my brothers felt that way as children. I don't know why that is. What it is in, in humanity that says we can't really belong here. We're not like everyone else. We're not part of everyone else, so we don't belong. And what's fascinating is, well, then, of course, if we do that humanly speaking, it shouldn't be a big surprise we occasionally sometimes do that to God. <laughs> say, well, I'm not really part of the family. But you know When, when any of my kids say to me, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm part of the family, what I try to do is say, I understand I'm not dismissing your emotion. That's a terrible way to feel. That's valid. But it's also wrong. Because I testify that you are my child. I was there when you were brought into this family. I testify to it. I bear witness to it. You are my child, regardless of what your feelings tell you. And God says the same thing to you. The Spirit says, you are my child, regardless of how it feels or what you think or what you did. And I love this idea of of sonship and adoption too, because how many of you parents have ever said to your kids, you are my child today, but tomorrow you better do that dishwasher. You better do your chores. You got to earn that wage to continue to be my child today. Look, I have standards for my kids. I have things I want them to do, but they're my child. That's what God says to you. You're my children. And the spirit he's given us is not one of slavery. Slavery the analogy breaks down and Paul breaks it down and God breaks it down in such a way that Paul can't even finish his thought. (laughs) We have an obligation, but not to the flesh because we're children of God. (laughs) Forget the rest of the sentence because all he wants to say now is we are children. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So in a sense... The end of Paul's sentence is we are obligated to nothing. Now, he says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We're going to have to break this down just a little bit because I know that it sounds a little bit weird. But it doesn't have to be. Because if we're consistent with the way Paul has used the word if, we'll find out this is actually not Maybe what it appears to be at first. But I understand what it appears to be. It appears to say if we, that, we, that if we are children, we're heirs and, and we're co-heirs with Christ, but this is only if we share in his sufferings. And then it appears on top of that to say that we will share in his glory, but only if we share in his sufferings. So it sounds like what this sentence is telling us is that we have to share in his sufferings in order to become co-heirs with Christ and in order to share in his glory. Well, leave aside the fact that that flies in the face of everything we've just said about it being a gift. (laughs) But let's look at the way Paul has used the word if consistently for the last several chapters. Paul has never used the word if in the conditional way we're thinking of it here. He has not at any moment said, if this is true, then this will be true. On the contrary, he's used the word if in a conditional way that we sometimes do as well, in which the first part of the condition is a certainty, not a question. For example, if 2 plus 2 is 4 and 4 plus 2 is 6, then we know that 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 6. Does my if in that sentence mean that I'm not sure if 2 plus 2 is (laughs) 4? It doesn't. It really means since. It's linking 2 plus 2 is 4 to 4 plus 2 is 6, meaning 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 6. The if there is saying since this is true We know these things. And I could go back through the last several chapters and show you how that's Paul's Paul's been using it, but we don't have to. We can just go to the beginning of the sentence because he says, if we are children, does he think we're children? Hasn't he already confirmed we're children? (laughs) Right. The if there is not saying, now, if you happen to be a child, no, it's saying since we're children. It is conditional in one sense, but it's a condition based upon a certainty. If you're children, you're co-heirs. Now, we go from there. He says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Then he says, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You know what else is a certainty to Paul? That you are going to suffer. That's not a question. And is it really a question for any of us? Suffering comes with living in a fallen world, period. And what he's really saying here is because we're co-heirs with Christ, it means that there's two things that are certain. And those two things are both part of being co-heirs. In other words, they're part of the inheritance. And part of the inheritance of Christ is that we will inherit his glory. But we know that we're going to inherit his glory we are indeed also going to inherit his suffering. So if we are suffering, says Paul. Now, again, I understand everybody suffers, so don't take this too far, but the point Paul's making here is an encouraging one. His point is, as he speaks to people who are suffering, as he speaks to people who are being persecuted, he's writing to the Romans, and right at this moment in history, Rome is a terrible place for a Christian to live. It's kind of the heart of the persecution that's beginning and is going to erupt even more. Josephus says right around this time, Christians were being burned as torches to light the way on the streets of Rome. That's a gruesome picture. So he says, if you're suffering, it's because you're co-heirs with Christ. And it's because you're also going to inherit his glory. You get all of it. You get the whole package, suffering and glory. You're going to see in a second, and Paul says this elsewhere too, that I'm going to prove to you Paul cannot be saying that our glory will be a reward for our suffering. The reason that can't be the true is because Paul doesn't think they even compare. In other words, you could never suffer enough to earn the glory you're going to get. It's not possible. That's why you can't, you can't suffer in afterlife for a gazillion years and then earn the glory either. There's never enough suffering to produce the glory that you're going to receive. The suffering just happens to be part of the package. And according to Paul, it's really nothing. This is what he says He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us or in us. Sorry, that's a really important preposition. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory. That will be revealed in us. Yes, yes, you're co-heirs. That means, of course, yes, you're suffering. But that suffering tells you that you're co-heirs, and that means you're going to be inherit the glory. And the glory is going to make the suffering something you forget. And Paul is suffering as he writes, and he knows whereof he speaks. This is not someone in a in a you know ivory tower who has never suffered, saying "Too bad for you." <laughs> But this is where it really heats up. This is where Paul begins to break open something he's only alluded to. This is where he begins to talk about what is this glory to come and why is there suffering? And this is what he says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I want you to step back and think about this a second. Paul is personalizing all of creation. And I think there's a sense in which it's accurate to do so. I don't, I don't want to get all confusingly mystical on you, and I don't know, but whether it's kind of metaphorical or not, it's interesting. This is a, a, an idea that we see throughout Scripture. The mountains clap their hands. The rivers sing for joy, right? Or the other way around. I don't remember. That's like the red and the blue pill. But one does one and one does the other. But, but there's something about this. He says the entire creation, what is included in creation? Everything including you but the whole universe right nothing exists except from god except for god that didn't come from god and he says the entire creation waits in eager expectation there's an anticipation there's a hope for a revelation to come but this is so cool because they don't wait in eager expectation for god to be revealed partly because they already know God has been revealed. The mountains clap their hands. The rivers sing for joy. The spiritual realm knows clearly who God is. They aren't waiting for God to be revealed. You know what they're waiting for? It's the you. The rivers do which? They clap. The rivers clap. Thank you. You. They're waiting for you. Creation was waiting for your salvation. Creation was waiting in eager expectation and hope. For your redemption. How weird. <laughs> how strange and how awesome. For the creation wakes in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Why? Why is the creation waiting for that? Why are they eager for that to happen? We eagerly awaited the Messiah. The Messiah came, changed us, and creation says, "Woo! that's what we were waiting for. Why? Well, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Let's be clear here. Who subjected creation to frustration? Not God. Adam, Eve, men. It's that whole representational thing. Remember, they made the choice to sin and the entire creation suffered. And now the creation faces frustration. They face frustration because, like us, they have been in bondage. We were in bondage to sin. The creation was not in bondage to sin. They were in creation to the curse of the sin. He says this. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's that fallenness. That's that entropy. That's that death of everything. That's the fact that everything decays. Material things decay. Time decays. Everything decays. It's all going to destruction. Eventually, eventually, from everything we understand, the entire universe will burn itself out. It's all moving that direction. And the creation is frustrated, says Paul. Creation's like, this is not even our fault. (laughs) But they also understand that the one who subjected them to frustration is the tool that God has decided to use to rescue creation from bondage. That it is through the revelation of the children of God that the, the creation receives hope of their own liberation. So you get this picture, you get this cosmic picture of the entire universe waiting for the sons of men to become children of God because the entire creation knows when that happens, their own liberation is not far behind. Brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Again, notice that. We are brought into the glory of Christ. Right? A glory greater than our own. Creation is brought into the glory of you. (laughs) What? (laughs) Again. It's that representational thing, though. It's always been that way, hasn't it? God created man to reflect God's glory on the earth, in the creation, to care for the creation. And creation was subjected to man as man was subjected to God. And as we then subjected the creation to frustration and decay, we also get to usher the creation into freedom and glory. Now, of course, all of this happens by God's act and God's will and Christ's death. But God chooses to do it for the creation through us. And it's the creation waiting for us that is... Paul's like, look at this. How weird is this? Everything is decaying. But everyone else except humans understand that the the, the, the hope that will rescue from the entire creation to decay is the revelation of the children of God. The revealing of the redemptive power in us. Okay, this is crazy because the gospel now does two things at once which is very hard for us to hold together but I'm going to give them both to you and I want you to try to hold them together because I think we have to even though we can't. So there you go. That in itself is a conundrum. On the one hand, we are really, really important. That's what Paul just said. (laughs) On the one hand, your salvation is really important to God's cosmic plan. You are integral, integral, to the redemption of the entire universe. You are. And on the other hand, your salvation, which you thought the gospel was all about, isn't that big a deal. (laughs) I mean, of course it's a big deal, but in the scheme of things, it's just a piece of the puzzle. So you get to live with the understanding that you are essential to God's plan and so important to him and he is mindful of you and at the same time that God says, get over yourself. (laughs) It's just crazy. It's both amazing that we're part of such a big cosmic plan and yet humbling that we're part of such a big cosmic plan. Mm -hmm. Our salvation is, of course, extremely important. But it's important as a piece of a much, much larger piece. It's a piece of God making everything okay bringing everything back in line, bringing all the redemption to bear. We know, I love this picture, we know, he says, that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I think this is a beautiful, inspired, literally, illustration. Because childbirth is painful. From what I understand, that's universally acknowledged. There are very, very, very few and rare women for whom childbirth is not painful. It's freakishly rare. Childbirth is painful, it hurts. And from what I hear, and I'm very quick to say, from what I hear, I obviously do not know any of this firsthand, but I have witnessed it. I can bear witness and testify to this. It's extraordinarily painful. And yet, women go back to it again and again. Voluntarily, women will go back to it again and again. I have sat in circles of women talking with each other about how painful childbirth is to some poor woman who is not yet pregnant, and that woman still chooses to get pregnant. Why? Would anybody choose to, go? you know, I've never had a kidney stone, but I hear that's painful too. And if you give me the option, I'll just pass (laughs) rather than pass it. Why, why do women keep choosing it? Because, because that suffering is not meaningless. It's not nothing. It's not without purpose. And the purpose that comes through all that pain and all that labor is something so beautiful and glorious and sacred that the suffering is okay. That the women are willing, even eager, to embrace the suffering for the purpose to come. And Paul says the fall, the creation of the, the, everything the creation is laboring on, that frustration of decay, he says the creation understands that that suffering is not meaningless, it's not nothing, but it's full of purpose. And that purpose is so sacred and beautiful and glorious that the life it produces makes the suffering okay. I think it's an amazing picture. He says, the universe has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Ever since the fall, the entire creation has been groaning, knowing that things aren't right, knowing that there's suffering and pain, knowing that things are wrong, and yet the creation has this hope in it, this confidence in it, that it's just childbirth. That what's coming at the end literally makes it all worth it. He goes on he says this, not only so, but we ourselves... We are part of that creation. We also groan and suffer. But then he says, of believers specifically, he says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. There's a couple of ways to understand first fruits. One is, we are the first ones to experience redemption. The creation is waiting in hope for it still to come. So we're the first fruits of the Spirit. Second way to see it is we have only received the first fruits of the spirit and there's more to come because our bodies still groan and our minds are still changing, but our spirit has changed. And even though we are the first fruits, we have the first fruits of the spirit. We also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He says there's the redemption of our bodies, which is still to come. So we groan inwardly for that. We groan because we're not out of this yet. We also are still in bondage to decay, no longer to sin, but still to decay. But we also have this hope and this understanding, and we have it even better because we have the first fruits. We have the down payment. We have the deposit. We've been made into new people. I I like this and you may wonder why does he say that we've already been adopted as sons a few verses earlier and now he says we eagerly await for our adoption and let me tell you something, that's exactly how adoption works. When we adopted our kids, we chose them long before we brought them home. We chose them and named them ours and claimed them. We filled out the paperwork but then we still had to go get them. And Lydia in particular, when we went to go get Lydia she was so eager she was waiting eagerly for she she used to ask every man that came through there is this my father is this my daddy so there was the adoption we did when we chose them and they even knew your parents are coming and then there's the day that we've made the place ready for them. We prepared a place for them in our house. And then we traveled a distance to get them. And then we collected them and we brought them home to the place we prepared. And both of those could be called the adoption. And that's what's happening for us. We've been adopted. We've been named. We've been claimed. We've been chosen. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's coming back, traveling a long distance to collect us and take us home to that place he prepared. And on that day, we will no longer groan. Because then our bodies will also change. And everything will be okay. Everything will be right. For in this hope, says Paul, we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is just a statement of fact. Yes, you still groan. Yes, you still suffer but your suffering is only a reminder that the glory to come will far surpass it. Your suffering is mere childbirth labor. I say mere, but I know it hurts. But I also know that the end is, a, is, a, is something so beautiful and sacred and glorious that brings life. That your suffering is not meaningless. It's not nothing. But it serves an incredible purpose. So yeah, we're new creatures, we're holy and we're led by the spirit, but we're still groaning and waiting for better things to come for the full and complete adoption and redemption, not only of ourselves, but of the entire universe. There's an incredible, before I read this, I was going to read you a quote from a book and then I couldn't figure out, it was like three pages long and I couldn't figure out where to break into it. And I also realized that if you haven't actually read the book, it might not be as exciting to you as it is to me. Um, so I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to tell you about it. If you want to go look it up, you can even Google it. If you Google Paralandra, the great dance, it's, it's part of C.S. Lewis's lesser known science fiction trilogy. He actually wrote a science fiction trilogy called Paralandra. And there's in the last book, and some of it's a little weird. So if you read the whole thing and you're troubled by some of the theology, just raise your hand and there'll be a lot of other people who will raise their hand too. I finally think I sort of get it, but it's weird. But if you skip to the end, (laughs) C.S. Lewis describes this thing called the Great Dance, which is all the stars and all the planets, because it's a science fiction trilogy, and all the universe, and it's this incredible mystical description. I honestly believe it's a description that came from a mystical experience. I just don't know how C.S. Lewis could have, this is just crazy, the way he writes it. And I can't describe it, and again, if I read a snippet of it, you'd just be like, what? But if you want to read the whole thing, just just Google it, because it really is this incredible picture of the whole creation just, just dancing at joy of the revelation of the sons of God. In the same way, says Paul, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with His will. I think what Paul is saying here is that even we, we groan, we're longing for this incredible redemption to come, but it is such a big picture. It is such an amazing thing. It's like that great dance that I can't even describe to you. And I'm amazed that C.S. Lewis could. It's like this incredible thing that we want, that we genuinely want. It's not a trick. It's not like you don't really want it. God's going to make you want it. It's everything you want. This perfection that you've never actually seen. This beauty that you've never quite grasped. This home that feels more like home than anything you've ever known. And yet you've never been there. And so when you go to the Holy Spirit to pray for those things, you're like, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how to pray for it. So we do the next best thing. And I think it's fine that we do. And I think God encourages us to do it. But we pray for things that feel right to us now. We say, well, I don't know what home looks like, but it doesn't look like this suffering. So God, can you take this suffering from me? And I do believe with all my heart that God does anything he can, whenever he can, just to make us feel better. But I also believe with all my heart that God is moving you towards perfection. And he's moving you towards the thing you really want, not the thing you really should want. Please don't confuse these. It's so discouraging to me when people say that that we don't want the right things and we have to wait for God to get us to want the things we want. That just sounds like some sort of weird brainwashing. I'm just like, what the heck? (laughs) I mean, that's what Apple computer does. They make me want things I didn't want a week ago. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that God, the Holy Spirit, it says, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit. He knows what we truly, truly desire because he created us with that. He knows who we truly are. And as we pray for the little things that we think will get us there, he gives us what he can when he can, when it it doesn't get in the way, so to speak. But more importantly, he translates it not into what it should be, but into what it actually is. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is a verse you've heard a lot and maybe you've understood it deeply and maybe you've understood it superficially. Let me see if we can make it deeper yet. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. First, let me point out to you that that phrase called according to his purpose applies to every believer. What is God's purpose? Redemption of everything. Didn't he just say that is what we believers are. We are The revelation of the children of God gives hope to the universe of the redemption of everything. That is the purpose to which we're called. If you're a believer, that's the purpose to which you're called. Period. There's this other one though. Sometimes we get in our own way. We say, well, I don't really love God. Look, there are days I don't love God. There are days I'm not sure I like God. But... Didn't he just finish telling us that those who are led by the spirit have the things of God in mind? In other words, you do love God. Even when you don't know you love God, that that is, I'm not, I'm not twisting things. That's what he just spent Romans eight saying. So when he now says to us, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He clearly just means every single redeemed person, every single believer. Because you do love God, because that is everything you're groaning for is God. You may sometimes get confused and not realize it's God, but it's God. And that love is something you have, not something you make or manifest or drum up or create. It's in you because the spirit of God is in you. And it testifies that God is your father and you love him. Sometimes you just got to remind the rest of yourself. And you are called according to his purpose. Because you're part of this grand cosmic plan. And he's going to make it happen. And therefore, for all of those people, God works everything to your good. And what's your good? That redemption. That complete and perfect and total redemption. But please hear what I'm saying. He works everything towards that. Everything. There is not a bad thing that happens to you that doesn't end up being used by God for your glory. Now, let me be really clear. And I'm just going to say this once. Then I'm going to go back to saying the other thing really strongly because I don't want us to miss it. So listen carefully. I am not saying bad things don't happen. Paul is not saying bad things don't happen. Bad things happen. I also am not saying, although I think you can argue both sides of this, But I personally am not saying that God causes all the bad things that happen to you to happen. You don't have to say either of those things to then go on to say, every bad thing that happens to you, God uses for your glory. Everything. And it doesn't matter if it's a choice you made that was stupid that led to your suffering, or if it's a choice that someone else made because they're stupid that led to your suffering. Or if it's what we call bad luck. And I don't want to get into an argument about whether luck exists or not, but I don't know what else to call some things where things happen and there's no explanation and they're terrible. (laughs) But even those things God uses for your good. God is this incredible heist master. I'm sorry, that's the way my brain goes here, right? You think of those movies where there's, the, there's always, in an Ocean's Eleven, there's always an ocean, and the ocean is the guy who makes the plans, and his plans were always incredible, so incredible that the plot makes no sense by the time you're done, but somehow he knew exactly what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how people were going to respond, and how to always get the outcome he wanted, right? And in a movie, we accept it because it's a movie and it's fun. But in reality, God can do that. And he does do that. And there's not a chess move that can be made that God hasn't already seen and counteracted for your benefit. Hold that thought because this is going to get even more amazing. He goes on, he says this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. Now, this passage gets involved in a lot of arguments. Because immediately you see the word predestined and we start having an argument about free will versus predestination. It's an interesting argument. Maybe someday we'll run across a passage of scripture where we'll have to have that argument. But this is not that passage. Because you can believe in free will or not. And this passage still says something incredible to you. Because let's break it down. For those God, what? foreknew, Those God knew about. Those that God looked ahead into the future and said, these are the people that are going to respond to the gospel. We're not talking about whether they had a choice to respond to the gospel or not. Paul doesn't get into that here. I'm not convinced he gets into it anywhere. But nonetheless, he definitely doesn't get into it here. All he says is, regardless of how you came to the gospel, and by the way, my answer, if you ask me, do we choose the gospel or does God choose us? My answer is yes. You can deal with that however you want. But what he says here is much simpler. God looked ahead and said, these people, put your name in here. He's going to respond to the gospel. He's going to accept my gift of grace. He's going to say yes. She's going to say yes. And then he said, for those who do that, I am determining their destiny now. And do you know when that now takes place? You know when this plan came into being? Before the creation of the world. So I want you to hear this. Before you were born, your destiny was written. Now, maybe it was written based upon a choice you were going to make that God saw, or maybe it wasn't. I don't care at the moment because that's not the message Paul is giving. The message Paul is giving is before you were born, God destined you for glory, which means that everything in your life from before salvation to the present day, everything in your life from where you were born to what you did as a young child to the things you knew to the suffering you experienced. Everything in your life has been a path to glory. Did it feel like it? Obviously not. But it has been. Because those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and he began that process from before the creation of the world. And those he predestined, he called And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. How amazing to think that every terrible thing and every fantastic thing and every mediocre thing and every breath that you took and everything that you saw and every mediocre TV show that you watched has all been part of your path to glory. I know that's given a lot of credit to TV, but you know. Isn't that amazing? You are on a path to glory. And the fact that it's been predestined means you don't get to walk away from it. I'm sorry if you want to, but if you do, you're really confused (laughs) because you can't. You're on a path to glory because God works everything out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and who love God. God works it all out so that you are on a path to glory. There may be people in your life who intentionally want to strip you of that path to glory. Guess what? God says, I'll just use that. You yourself might occasionally self-sabotage. You might be like, I don't like me. We've all been there. And you do something stupid and God's like, I'll use that. You might have the best parents or the worst parents. And God says, I'll use that. You might have been treated like you deserve to be treated as a human being with dignity, or you might have been horribly abused. God doesn't say it doesn't matter, but he says, I'll use that. Rick Warren is fond of saying, no hurt goes. No. How does he say it? Wasted. Thank you. Thank you. He says... No hurt is wasted. Your life has been a path to glory, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But then the question becomes, so what do we do with this information? I love how Paul says it. Really, I hope at this moment that it's resonating enough with you. I hope that God is stirring your heart. And if he's not, it's not your fault and it's not my fault. It's God's fault and he'll do it in his own time. Okay, so don't take this as any kind of judgment on anyone. Certainly not on me. But the point is, I hope it's resonating with you to some degree. I hope that it's stirring your emotions or at least your intellect. And if it is, you may already be seeing implications of this. But the nice thing is Paul doesn't require that. He's just going to tell you. (laughs) He's like, what should we say in response to this? I'll tell you. You know, it's interesting. I've come to believe over the years... um, I used to, when I, when I first, I was involved with Great Commission, some of you were in, some of you were not, but that was the church that raised me in my, in my Christian, uh, really raised me to maturity. I was a Christian before that, but raised me to Christian maturity. And Great Commission was very good at saying, what's the application, right? Any scripture, what's the application? But it took me a while to realize that the application is actually always the same. And it's to believe it. <laughs> Whatever scripture says, the application is to believe it. Sometimes believing it will lead you to do something. Sometimes it will lead you to change something, and sometimes it will lead you to do nothing. But this is one of those moments where the first application is to believe it. But Paul's going to tell us, what are the implications if we actually believe all this? What would our response be if we saw that the gospel was this incredible cosmic plan of which you are a part, and you are such an integral part, that you've been destined, your destiny's been written, and it's a path of glory? What would that mean? What would that really change? And this is what Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? By the way, notice the use of the word if here. Does he mean maybe God is for us? (laughs) Clearly not. He means since God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. What Paul is saying is this changes everything about the power we think other people have in our lives. He's writing to people who are being burned as torches in the streets and he says to them, who can be against us? And their first answer might be Nero was number one. My neighbor is number two. That centurion over there is number three. That merchant who won't sell me anything is number four. But Paul says, but if God is for us, does any of that really matter? Because God is not only thinking kindly of us, but he's taking everything that person who's against you is doing. And what's he doing with it? He's turning it for you. He's using it for your good. It's a really practical, logical implication. If God is doing that, if he's for us, then what does it matter who is against us? That's really what he means. Of course, people might be against us, but their being against us has no impact. I understand it has emotional impact. I understand it has physical impact. I understand it matters on one level. But Paul is working really hard, and so am I, to, to rise above that for a moment. I will be sympathetic with you in the moment. Trust me. God doesn't call us to be anything but compassionate and grieve with each other in the moment. But Paul's rising above that moment or at the moment. (laughs) And he's saying right now, it helps. It will help. It will help if you will recognize that there's nothing anyone can do against you that God has not already foreseen and predestined as part of your path to glory. So when that person does something horrible to you, you get to say in your heart and out loud to them if you want. There are a few uh, martyrs who did that. I mean, it didn't save their life or anything, but occasionally they would say out loud, you can't do anything to me. Not meaning you can't do anything to me, but meaning nothing you do will matter. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If you forget, says Paul, as we all do, if you have moments where you tend to, con- to question whether God actually loves you that much, whether he actually cares a whit about your day, if you hit a moment where you're like, man, if God were here, He's just callously letting this happen. He must not really care. If like the apostles in the boat during the storm, you find that your words to Jesus are, do you not care? Paul says, when you feel that, remind yourself. He has demonstrated to you with his own life, the life of God, the life of his son, whichever way thinking of it resonates with you best, go with it because they're both true. But he has shown you that. And the thing to remember is when we're told that God is the same yesterday and today and forever, that means the passionate, enduring, incredible, intimate, self-sacrificing love that God had for you that moment. is the same love he has for you today and tomorrow and for the rest of eternity. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Is there any time that God would withhold something from you if it was truly the best? And I know that in the moment, this is sometimes impossible to believe. And God does not scorn that. He looks with compassion on you and says, I know you cannot see what I see. But what Paul wants to say to us is at least accept That you cannot see what he sees. At least accept that he is giving you graciously everything. And if he's not giving you something you feel you need. It just happens to be one of those moments you're wrong. But don't be wrong about God. Because it helps. How will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? And if it helps, remember, yes, it's because he loves you so much, but it's also not all about you. Sometimes it's easier for me to believe that God is doing all these amazing things for me. If I also remember, it's part of a cosmic plan. It's not just about me. Because I, I think there is a realistic picture that God is God and we're way down here. I watch Suits, and the people in Suits are always talking about, they're always asserting their authority by saying, I'm up here, and you're down here. I mean, God would be like, I'm up here, and you're down here. I mean, that's okay, and I think that that's okay. And yeah, he loves you that much. He would do it for you anyway. I do believe that. I do. I believe he would do it anyway, regardless. But sometimes it's helpful for me to remember, oh, yeah, he's committed to a bigger cosmic plan, and he made me part of it. (laughs) That's his fault. (laughs) Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? This is everything. No one even has authority to condemn you. Nero condemns you. I think one of, the re- one of the reasons. It's not the only one. But I think one thing, this is true for me, and I think it's true for a lot of us. One thing that makes it so much more painful when people do mean things to us rather than when life is just hard. When, when people do mean things to us, I think one reason it's harder. Sometimes we feel betrayed. That's true. But I think if we're super, super honest with ourselves... Every time someone does something mean to us, there's a part of us that says, yeah, I probably earned that. There's a part of us that says, I probably deserved that. We see this in extreme cases with abuse victims, right? They have a tendency to think, well, I guess I did something to deserve that. Of course, that's not true. Of course, it's not true. And part of the exhortation here is Paul is saying, just because Nero says the Christians are responsible for every bad thing that's happened in the world, which is pretty much what Nero did, doesn't mean he's Right? (laughs) In fact, who is he to condemn you? When a friend of yours accuses you of stuff that maybe you're guilty of or maybe you're not, it's still helpful to remember, God doesn't condemn me. So what does their charge matter? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Well, yeah, people condemn me. point again is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Again, however you want to look at it, God does not need to be convinced by Jesus. God the Father already believes in you. But Jesus is also interceding all the time. Here's the way I think we picture this. The Father and the Son sit around and spend a lot of time chatting about how awesome you are. I'm serious, and yet, isn't that weird to say? (laughs) But that's what this says. Whatever time means to the Trinity, and I I understand it's a whole different ball of wax. But, but I like that idea. They're sitting around all the time, Jesus interceding, and the Father's like, "I know, I know, I know." (laughs) They're so cool. we just so often get different pictures of God, don't we? Too many preachers and too many books and too many commentaries and too many parents, and too many teachers and too many misunderstood scriptural passages and too much self-talk. Too much TV. That's a statement. I watch a lot of TV, but that statement is probably true about a lot of things. Too much TV. Yeah. There's just too many pictures of God, which are God and Jesus looking sternly at us. And Jesus is saying, well, I did die for him, so I guess we got to let that one slide. <laughs> and the father's like, you sure? Because I'm so mad. But that's not the picture. That is not the picture. God is actively involved in making everything work for your good. There's not a single moment that he says, oh, I'm so ticked. This one's going bad. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You don't have to read anymore. You know what Paul's answer is going to be, right? It's going to be no one and nothing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Here's the thing about this list. This list is tailor-made for the people Paul's writing to, right? This list focuses on the kinds of suffering they experienced. But if Paul were writing this for you, what would it say? It would say whatever you need. (laughs) It would say whatever it is that you question, whatever it is that you think makes you remove yourself from the love of God. And may I please remind you, you are included in this list. You cannot remove yourself from the love of God. There's a great Psalm 139 David says, I go up to the heavens, you find me. I go down to the depths, you find me. I go over here, you find me. I wake up and you're there. And I go to bed and you're there. And if you read it the right way, it almost sounds like David's a little bit irritated. Yeah, he's like, I keep trying to get away. Well, sometimes we want to get away. And it ain't going to happen. And ultimately, the point is that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Paul goes on and says, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I think this is just a message of relatability. Look, we know you're going through suffering. We know you're going through persecution. We know that you're going through these difficulties. Well, guess what? We are too. We are in it with you. And we still believe this to be true. No, says Paul, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that phrase, more than conquerors. What does it mean to be more than conquerors? Well, think about it. Think if he said we're conquerors through him who loved us, right? It would mean that we're going to overcome. We're going to overcome pain and struggle and we're going to overcome things and maybe even overcome the Romans, right? The Israelites were conquered by the Romans. They want to conquer them in a sense. Maybe that's what it means. We can overcome, we'll conquer we'll conquer. But the problem with being a conqueror, you know what the problem is? You're always on the defensive after that. You're always working hard. You're always struggling to maintain it. Paul says we're more than conquerors. Why? Because we're not conquerors. We don't have to overcome. We don't have to continue to fight. We'll never get tired because the victory's already been won. We are not conquerors. We are heirs of the new kingdom, which is settled and nobody can ever take. We are more than conquerors. Death and sin and pain and struggle, we are so far above these. We rise above these. We can just dismiss these things. We don't have to defend the territory, conquering again and again and again. For I'm convinced, he goes on to say, that neither death nor life, right? Think about that. Neither death nor life. That's pretty much everything. But he goes on, neither angels nor demons, nothing in the spiritual realm, even those things we can't see, neither the present nor the future. You might think you're good right now, but what about tomorrow? Maybe you'll do something in a, in a year or two that will really make God stop loving you. Nope, he says, not the future either, nor any powers, not your powers, not your friend's powers, not Satan's powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. So you can list anything, and it's covered by that last phrase, isn't it? In fact, what's the only thing that is not covered in that phrase, all creation? Right, God himself. And God is not going to remove his love from you. That's the promise he's already given. So nothing can take you from him, and he's not going to take you from him. And it says, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what there is... What is the good news about the gospel? See, the good news about the gospel isn't just what Christ did. That's certainly good news. That's amazing news. Your salvation is amazing news. Even this big cosmic plan that God has in mind, that's amazing news. But the really amazing thing, the thing that's really good news, the thing that really changes everything, is not what God did, but who God is. What God did reveals who he is, and that is that he is a God of love. And not to get hokey or weird, but it is true. It is the reality that the power of the gospel is God's love. The, most, the biggest power in the universe is the love of God, and nothing can overcome it, and it never fails, and it cannot, you cannot be pulled away from it. So, yes, it's what God did, but the reason you don't have to worry about tomorrow or the next day is because God's love that caused him to do that is the same. The beauty about God being the same yesterday and today and forever is that the same Father who gave up his Son for you and the same Jesus who died on a cross for you because of their deep, abiding, personal, passionate love for you is the same today. They have that love today as well. This is the true good news that God is unstoppably loving. The power of God for salvation is the love of God. And that changes everything. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore, at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.